Hi everyone, Martin Willis here. Welcome to the Antique Auction Forum. We are now on Stitcher. You can listen on your smartphones. And it looks like a lot of people are doing that. So if you happen to be listening to us on Stitcher or iTunes, please jump on our website. It's antiqueauctionforum.com and check out our message board. You can interact with other collectors or enthusiasts. So here's our podcast, number 96. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. I'm at the Victoria Mansion in Portland, Maine, and I'm here with Arlene Palmer-Schwinn, the curator. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. And the director, Tom Johnson. How are you, Tom? Great, thank you. Uh, first thing I want to talk about when I drove up here, this place is really impressive. I mean, the, the architecture just stands out on the street. And I assume that's what Morse was the name who built this hotel. This, uh, he was a hotel He owner. was a hotelier. And, yes, he built this as his summer home, hmm. his little summer palace in Portland, Maine. It's in the Italian villa style, so it does make quite a statement. Yes. Now, do you, have you, has anyone ever calculated the square feet of this place? Threw that one at you, didn't I? You look at each other. Well, we ha- that is actually a question that has been out there, and I had figured it out once, but um, off the Roughly. top of my head, I can't say. It's not actually enormous. It's a two-bedroom house. It's a two-bedroom it's, house? Yes. But the the foot the uh, footprint of it is it's on a palatial scale. Yes, largely wow. because the ceilings are so high. The parlor is eighteen by thirty feet uh-huh. to give you a sense, and that is mm-hmm. the entire west side of the house. Yes, and now we're here at your deck the halls, it's called, and your Christmas celebration, and that's yearly from when to when. We have been decorating the mansion for Christmas. For 27 years, I believe, and we open the day after Thanksgiving mm-hmm. and run into early January. This year will be January 8th. Mm-hmm. Um, open every day but Christmas and New Year. Oh, very good. Now, I grew up, I personally grew up in a Victorian home, and I have a real soft spot, and as soon as I walk in here, it just feels like warm and comfortable, and it's it's just a, a beautiful home, and I what I understand is when the place was sold, a lot of the furniture went away. But Arlene, you you have been able to get a lot of it back here. Can you t- explain how that happened? That's right. We we actually have over ninety percent of the original furnishings from eighteen sixty. The house was built between eighteen fifty eight and eighteen sixty, and lived in by the Morses, who had no children. And when after Mr. Morse died, his widow sold the house with contents. And we actually have an inventory of the contents that were sold to Joseph Ralph Libby and his family. And they moved in in 1894, very happy to use these things, even though they had M's on them or had Morse (laughs) written outright. Mm -hmm. And uh, over the years, the uh, Libby descendants in particular have been very generous about returning things to us. Some objects never left the house at all. It was Mm -hmm. opened as a museum in 1940, but there was a period... In the 1930s, when the house was unoccupied, and um, there were, it was threatened with demolition, actually, and yes. it was saved in 1940. But um, 
No, we've been, in fact, just this week, six more dinner plates from the original por- porcelain service returned. Really? Now, is that does that make that a complete set? Oh, we were talking about that this morning. I have a feeling it was a service for 24, so we don't have it all yet, but we do have probably close to 200 pieces now. So has the museum ever purchased anything at auction to get it back into the home? We have. In terms of the porcelain service, I've never seen other examples that match our service, except a few years ago I found uh, two impressive compotes in red, and our service is both in green and in red. It was not the Morse service, but it had someone else's initial on it, but I bought them because they were things we could use. I would be more comfortable with using those for displays at Christmas and so on. And then uh, a year or so ago, one of the original armchair from the reception room suite turned up at auction. Hmm. And we were very excited to be able to acquire that. So a few things have slipped out from the family, but every now and then they do surface on the market. That's great. So I did a little bit of reading, and I saw how close this place came to being demolished. I want to talk about that. And I know my grandparents talked about the 38 hurricane that came through here mm-hmm. and destroyed so many things. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I found a, a painting that was in the 30s where someone painted a this famous tree in down in Massachusetts, and then afterwards they wrote it destroyed in the uh, hurricane of thirty eight so that was a nasty hurricane that came through here. What happened to the mansion that made it um, almost be destroyed well it wasn 't destroyed as a result so much of the hurricane. The family had was not living here. their store had closed during the depression. none of their children could afford to keep it up, and so forth but I think 38 put the maybe icing on the cake, as it were, because even though it's a very tall building, apparently a tree or a branch or several trees wound up hitting the superstructure over the skylight and smashing it and falling down onto the original skylight of stained glass, which is 25 feet long, and destroying that. And when Dr. Holmes was first shown the house, he talked about how it had been open to the roof, and uh, people talked about seeing snow around the newel post mm-hmm. at the foot of the staircase. So, yes, the hurricane damaged the roof. Mm-hmm. But the place was almost bought by a gas station or oil company or something? That's right. Dr. Holmes was actually shown the property uh, by a realtor who thought he might want to invest in the potential uh, for development, either as, as a gas station is what it was going to be. An atrocity. Yes. What's here. Yes, and so he <clears throat> decided to purchase it instead and open it as a museum. That's wonderful. Now, Gustav, Gustav Herder, one of the Herder brothers, did a lot of work in this place. Tom, do you have information about that? Sure. Uh, it was his uh, first American commission, and... Uh, the, the only one to survive intact until today. Uh, now, can you explain what you mean by that? <clears throat> the, the places were torn down that he did other work? Uh, Gustav Herder did a number of other decorations in houses uh, in New York. Um, they were the, He went on with his brother to found the major interior decorating firm in the United States in the mid to late 19th century. And they decorated a number of homes, and this is the only house to survive with its original wow. uh, furniture and decoration intact. Mm-hmm. And it happens to be his earliest. 
So um, we're we're very fortunate in that it's the only place in the United States you can see his furniture in its original context. Wonderful. Now you know a little bit about the architecture here too. Can you? You said it's uh, a Connecticut uh, architect. A, yes. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> the house. Uh, was designed by a New Haven, Connecticut architect named Henry Austin. And uh, it's in the Italian villa style. Again, uh, a number of these houses were built in the 1840s, 50s, and early 60s as in a very fashionable style. It's, again, the only uh, commission of Austin to survive intact with its original interiors still there. Mm-hmm. Um it's built of Connecticut brownstone, uh, which is a, a beautiful, beautiful warm stone, but uh, it doesn't happen to be the best thing to build with in northern New England because mm. it's a very friable stone. It uh, it will come apart in freeze and thaw. Uh, so there's a lot of maintenance? There is a lot of maintenance. Mm. And uh, the house has had uh, a number of restoration um, projects completed on it, the most major of which was the reconstruction of the exterior of the prominent uh, tower outside. Mm-hmm. To do that, uh, the original Portland, Connecticut brownstone quarries were opened, wow. and uh, stone was cut from them and brought up to replicate the deteriorated stone that had been there. Now, is there anything that can be coated on the outside of them to stop this we deterioration? Have, okay. There is no technology known at hmm. this point that, uh, to stop the deterioration. So you're going to have to keep stone. opening the quarry. <laughs> well, the quarry has been open uh, for a few years, and because of restrictions on its borders now, it's about quarried out. Hmm. So uh, it is closing. Hmm. We have some brownstone in reserve. Uh, certainly we have no project facing us of the magnitude of the tower. Hmm. But um, in other instances, the museum has elected to use rusticated wood, which basically is wood um, uh, milled and uh, built to replicate the original brownstone contours mm-hmm. uh, and then it is painted with a sanded paint uh-huh. and uh, we've been Makes successful sense. in that yeah yeah now we talked earlier about the 30s what kind of effect did the depression have the great depression have on the family living here at the time do you have that uh, history J.R. Libby had founded Portland's first department store which opened in 1896 he died in 1917, but his sons and sons-in-law continued to operate that. It was a landmark in downtown Portland, but it closed in 1935. After Mrs. Livy had died in 1923, one of their daughters lived here with her husband, but by 1928, the house was empty. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then there was that time, period of time, where it was unoccupied for how many years? Well, we know there were caretakers here at at various points in that uh, 12-year period between 1928 and 1940. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's hard to know exactly. 
Um, but I would say the at least eight of those 12 years hmm. was unoccupied. Yeah, and I know what happens. A house just seems to crumble apart when it's not cared for. Um, I want to talk about the Turkish room because I read a magazine article and saw the beautiful pictures. Can you tell me... That must have been a major project to put that back together. Can you talk about that? Oh, it was. It was our <clears throat> our first major interior project, and it was made possible because, as Tom said, we had restored the tower, and the Turkish Room is located in the tower, and it made no sense to do any interior work until the exterior was uh, totally secured so we wouldn't have leaking or something like that. The Turkish Room <clears throat> has the most dramatic paint in some ways in the house. It's brilliant red and gold and a gold leaf, in fact, and, and uh, white and a blue-green color with designs of Moorish inspiration. We believe, in fact, it's the earliest room in America interior with decoration in the Islamic-inspired taste and the earliest smoking room that survives. Mm. So it's a tiny room. It's only about nine feet square. Um, really? It's deceiving in the pictures. Well, it yeah. is. And it has our most elaborate and intricate fabric. One of the amazing things here is that we do have a collection of fabric and uh, passementary, that is all the decorative silk trims, from the original 1860 decoration uh, program. And so we were able to replicate exactly wow. the fabrics in that room. And it was... As with most of the rooms, the curtains, valances, and upholstery were all done in the same fabric. Mm. And this design, the design of this fabric incorporates Arabic strap work. It's very uh, appropriate for the style of the room. And there are 82 tassels in the room, uh, silk tassels, and the tiebacks incorporate a crescent motif, which is appropriate, the Turkish crescent. And the same crescent is seen on the ebony window cornices in the room. Hmm. So it's a, it's a wonderful statement of Herder's genius of pulling together all the design elements, whether it's the gazelier or the furniture, the furniture design or the fabrics and the wall paintings, to create this wonderful uh, breath of the far distant east, as someone referred to it in 1911. Hmm. So. so was this uh, gazelier you just mentioned, this, this house had gas lighting when it was first constructed. Yes. Mm -hmm. And we have an amazing collection of the original gas fixtures as a result. Some of them were electrified by the Libby's in 1902. Some were never electrified until museum has done it recently. Mm -hmm. Can you talk, what do you, what would you consider the most monumental piece of furniture, Herder, is it Herder Brothers furniture? Or Herder? No, Christian Herder does not join Gustav. Uh, as a partner until 1864, and it becomes Herder Brothers in 1864. Mm -hmm. Gustav was on his own uh, from 1858. He went on his own, and that's when uh, certainly the plans for this house began. And he was only 28 years old. Wow. So between 1858 and 1864, he's on his own. So this house is Gustav Herder. We are the mm -hmm. mother load of Gustav Herder <laughs> furniture. Yeah, and I saw this fabulous piece right off of the reception room. Mm -hmm. Would you consider that the most monumental piece? Well, it's, I think it probably is. It's a piece that we loaned to the Metropolitan Museum of Art for their Art and Empire City show. Oh, wow. And it was a icon in that show. They used it in a lot of their publicity as 
<clears throat> exemplifying where the period was ending. I think the end of the exhibit was 1860. It's a piece that is a bird's eye maple, highly figured and trimmed in rosewood, but it has everything going on it. It has elaborate carving. Hmm. It has a marquetry panel. It has a painting on canvas. Really? Uh, set into That's the upper the door. Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. I was wondering what And that then was. wonderful ormolu mounts. Mm -hmm. When it went, when we conserved it prior to it going to the museum for the exhibition, we, it did not have its drawer pulls. There's actually a little desk in there that pulls out that has ebony um, details in it. And... But lo and behold, one of the original drawer pulls was jammed behind the drawer. Huh. So we were able to replicate, replicate, it. Uh -huh. replicate it for the other drawer. Wow, that's amazing. Now, is that the only piece of furniture that has been moved out of here for display and then back? No, we, we sort of came to fame in the 1990s when the Herder Brothers exhibition was mounted jointly by the Museum of Fine Arts Houston and the Metropolitan Museum in, I think it was 1993-94. And so seven things left the mansion f to be in that exhibit, which also went to the High Museum. Mm -hmm. the, we have only one signed piece of Herder furniture, which is the console table in the parlor. And that went to the exhibit, as well as uh, some chairs and a sofa. And mm -hmm. Now, have you ever been to the Morse's other homes? Sadly, the house they lived in in New Orleans is no longer standing. Ah, I mm -hmm. have walked along the pavement. I have fondled the fence because it <laughs> is the 1850s fence that they would have known. But alas, the house is not the one they lived in. Oh, that's too bad. And prior to that, he lived in his hotels. Uh -huh. Are his hotels still standing? Oh, no. no? Long gone. All gone. All gone. In wow. fact, there are very few, if any, hotels from the mid-19th century, these grand urban hotels yes. that survived. They seem to burn down. That's the number one thing you read about them. Well, the first one he was involved with on his own was, was called the Banks Arcade, which was actually a rather old hotel by that time, but he took it over in 1852, and it burned in 1859. But a new mm. one was promptly built on the site and quickly built, and he uh, assumed the management of that as well, the St. James Hotel. Mm -hmm. How many people would you say come through here during the year. Do you have any idea? 17, 18,000. Really? Mm -hmm. Wow, that many people. And how do they find out about it? Um, to be honest with you, when I met you in San Francisco, that's the first I've heard. Well, I'm not from the Portland, Maine area, but that's the first I've heard of the Victoria Mansion. And I did happen to look it up online and thought it was very impressive. And well, we do have a very good website. Uh, I, I agree. You have an excellent website. And it will, just to let our listeners know, it will be posted below your podcast um, on our podcast page so people can click through to that and visit. Excellent. Is the museum closed during the year, or can you just basically talk about what your, your tours are and things? The museum is open regularly for tours from May 1st through October. These are tours for which you do not need a reservation, uh, we offer tours quarter of and quarter after the hour. These are per guided tours of about 45 minutes in length mm -hmm. by very well-trained docents. Mm -hmm. We then close in November to get ready for Christmas. We open, as I said, the day after Thanksgiving for our Christmas season of five or six weeks. And during the Christmas tours, people 
uh, we have docents in the rooms. People can go through at their own pace and enjoy the decorations and the house. Mm-hmm. In then we in January we're closed. January uh, we do some school tours and special things like that in the early spring. But Maine being vacation land, uh, mm-hmm. our prime season is May through October. Yeah. What do you know about the personal life of the Morses that built this place? Were they social climbers? Were they quiet? Did they come here for rest? Did they come here to vacation, have fun? Were they social in Portland? We don't really know a lot about that because, sadly, we don't have any personal papers. I've only been able to find one letter of Morse's. Both Morse and his wife were Maine natives, so choosing to return to Maine for the summer was a natural decision. So I'm sure they visited family and uh, so on. Their comings and goings were dutifully reported in the newspapers. Everything I know about Morse, which is actually a great deal, I have had to learn from uh, uh, public sources, census, newspapers, legal court cases, <clears throat> and so on, to put together a picture of their of their life. If the New Orleans season was uh, November through April, the hotels were actually closed in the summer, and because the threat of yellow fever was such, if you had any money, you got out of New Orleans hmm. in the summer. So many people would flock to the north, and Morris decided to build his summer home here. Hmm. Now, the Civil War, he was just here? How did the Civil War affect? The house was built in 1858 to 1860. On the eve of the Civil War. Mm. Uh, it, we know it was pretty much finished by June of 1860. I assume they were here that summer. What was his ties? Did he consider himself a union? Well, when you look at the mansion, the stained glass window on the stair landing incorporates the state seals of both Maine and Louisiana, and above it is an image of Columbia. So you, it's rather poignant to think that this was done on the eve of the war, and presumably he wished the Union could be preserved. However, he lived in New Orleans. He was a slave owner. We know he admired Robert E. Lee because we have a portrait of his that was owned by Morse. Hmm. New Orleans was occupied, captured and occupied by Union troops in April of 1862. And and so from then on, the Morses were in New Orleans. They were there for the duration of the war. They mm. only returned to Maine pro- probably in 1865, in the summer, certainly in 1866. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's something I never contemplated about someone that had two different homes in you know, the South and the North. Mm-hmm. Um, I wondered if there was ridicule or anything like that when he would come up here. Uh, well, they were... When I was first involved here, there were certainly there were some stories about being shunned in Portland and all of that. But I have never seen any proof of that. Yeah, um, that's the kind of thing you hope you find the diary entry from yeah. one of the neighbors or something like that. But and I'm sure they it will surface. But I really don't want to say one way or another how they were received in Portland. Yeah. Although we just just turned up a um, note that was written by Mrs. Morse as a thank you to one of her very prominent neighbors who was very socially prominent in Portland, thanking him for the services he rendered at the time of Morse's funeral. So I'm imagining he may have been a pallbearer. And Mm -hmm. that little note has given me a lot of ideas about 
think, rethinking their role in Portland society. Mm -hmm. Now, did any of the pieces of furniture go to any of the neighbors here? Mm, not that I know, not that know, <laughs> that I know yeah. of. <laughs> it's still possible, though, something could be out there. You know, a lot of times oh, yes. when, the, when things were sold, sometimes they were sold at these little auctions. Sometimes people were invited to come in and bid. And uh, possibly neighbors sometimes. Well, there was a major sale in 1970 of a Morse descendant. And actually, this uh, grandnephew's wife, who lived to be 100, and it was a Talbot sale in, in, uh, in Maine. And I have the listing of it. I know mansion things were sold there. Hmm. Some of those have surfaced. and Because a lot of family members... Uh, Morse family members attended the sale and bought these things back and we have been the recipients of their generosity in returning some of these things but there's still a few things out there I'm looking for and the description in the uh, auction notice was sufficiently detailed I can match it up with some images we oh, do really? have period photographs we have about oh. 40 period photographs that date before 1940 only two wow. from the Morse period Mm -hmm. um, but as early as 1895, the Libbies were photographing the interiors of the house. Mm -hmm. Now, this neighborhood, there's some beautiful homes in this neighborhood. Was this the only construction from that architect? 1858, when Morse uh, started this mansion here, this was probably one of the preeminent neighborhoods in Portland. It was mm -hmm. certainly one of the most fashionable. And... Uh, as a little historical aside here, uh, two buildings, uh, two homes and a barn had to be removed from this site before the mansion was built. And one of those homes had been uh, where the uh, English cabinet maker John Seymour Oh, you're kidding. Lived. Wow. Uh, so uh, this, the site has a uh, connection to uh, federal period furniture that's mm. well known in Maine. Mm -hmm. At any rate, it, it was a very fashionable neighborhood. I think he consciously built here because of that, and he wanted to show his wealth uh, in this very fine neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Does anyone know how he became, he grew up on a farm and how he got into the hotel business? Has that ever been explored? S something of a mystery. He was born in Leeds, Maine, to a rural uh, family. There were no direct hotel connections in his family, but by the time he was a teenager, he had gone off to see the world, which was Boston, and wound up landing a job at the Tremont Hotel, oh, yeah. which was one of New England's first luxury hotels. It's a beautiful place. And yeah. so he was there and got all involved in what was a, a new and exciting profession, namely the running of these major urban hotels on a basis that uh, was totally new, um, the the concept of having amenities like bathing facilities and private rooms and all of that was just coming in in the early 1830s. He then went to New York and worked at the Astor House Hotel mm. along with the manager who was lured away from the Tremont by John Jacob Astor to, to run that hotel and then moved to New Orleans to work at the St. Charles Hotel, which, when it was built, was the biggest, the grandest, the most spectacular hotel in the country. Hmm. 
So he clearly got hooked in this um, yeah. business. And but what initially got him excited about it, whether it was chance that he wandered into the Tremont, or whether he went to Boston saying, "I want to be learn about hotels," I don't know. But clearly, this mansion here uh, as a museum is very important on many levels. One of them is the fact that his taste was entirely shaped by his hotel experience. So in many ways, what you see here is a microcosm of those grand hotels from the mid-19th century, none of which survive today. So he has servants' call bell systems, he had wall-to-wall carpets, he had the latest in gas lighting and in uh, plumbing and all these kinds of amenities, mm. which mm. were still not in many homes. Right, right. Um, getting back to the people that come here, what would you say the demographics are? Do you see young people here at all? Increasingly, we do. Okay. Um, within <clears throat> the last few years, uh, the mansion has uh, expanded its presence on social networking sites. Aha! Uh-huh. And good that idea has uh, evidently helped our visitation. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing. Uh, that Portland is uh, sort of blessed with, and the museums here um, benefit from that, is a uh, fairly substantial uh, cruise ship trade Yes, in the fall, especially mm-hmm. September and October. And many, many of the people on those cruise ships will tell us that they have checked us out online before, TripAdvisor, other uh, areas like that. Hmm. And because of recommendations by other visitors, have made it a point to see the mansion. That's great. And social networking is uh, such a part of what makes things successful today. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it, you you have someone helping you. I like to say one of the <laughs> one of the best things I did when I became director is I hired a twenty four year old to oversee <laughs> yeah. our our presence on the. Uh, on the web, and uh, it's grown exponentially. And uh, we do see younger people coming in now, and I think uh, are fairly blown away by the interior, didn't expect what they see. I tell you, I didn't expect it. And they go away telling their other friends about this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the place is just just gorgeous. Uh, What do you think the future of the museum is going to be? Well, today uh, we are on an upswing at Victoria Mansion. Our visit to visitation has uh, increased within the last two years. It's really an anomaly in New England where uh, many uh, nonprofit museums are suffering from declining right. uh, visitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to say Victoria Mansion is in the right place at the right time. We have the cruise ships. We have uh, a good uh, internet presence. We also happen to be in a city that has been consistently voted one of the top ten cities to live in or visit in the United States. We're noted for our restaurants. Right. So everything comes together um, to help us attract visitation. We're within easy walking distance of the old port and mm-hmm. other tourist meccas. Mm-hmm. Now, the address here is physical, ad- physical address? 109 Danforth Street in Portland. 
And your 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 web address, please. VictoriaMansion.org. All right, great. Thank you two so much. I really appreciate this. It's been a lot of fun and a beautiful place, and I hope our listeners will make an attempt to get out here and see the place. Thank you very much. So this is Martin Willis with Arlene Palmer-Schwinn and Tom Johnson, and we're all signing off. Mm -hmm.